I was reading the other day from the book of Haggai, the prophet. Now, the prophet Haggai was one of, of, of about three um, prophets that were prophesying to the tribes of Judah and Benjamin after they had come back from the um, Babylonian captivity. They were there for 70 years. Um, a lot of them, some of them came later. There's two other groups that came later, but there's quite a group of them came back after the seventh year, 70 years. Jeremiah had prophesied that many years before they ever went. And so Hagar was written because some things that happened when they get back to the uh, country from Babylon that um, needed to be corrected. And so we're going to look a little bit, first of all, at the um, just the historic part of it. And I'm, a lot of this I get from David Pawson's book on Unlocking the Bible, a powerful book to help us understand the scriptures, the context, the, the time frame, the history, and what the book was written for and who and all that stuff. So it's very profitable if you're um, reading the Bible. You don't even have to be a, a big full-time student. This is a book that helps you. And so these are the things that, that he points out. It was written after the Babylonian captivity, as I explained. Now, the Persian king Cyrus had conquered Babylon in 538 B.C. And Cyrus told the Jews um, at the end of um, 70 years that they could go home to Israel, but they were to build a temple there. And he promised the money to build the temple. So it was a tremendous act of God to take a king who was not Jewish, who was not a follower of God, but being led by God anyway to do what God had prophesied he would do. He would bring them back. The temple which had been destroyed in the when Babylon took it over 70 years before was going to be rebuilt. And then also before uh, and during and after the walls were actually being rebuilt. And we can get the record of that from both Ezra and the books of Nehemiah and Ezra. So the trouble is, the people that lived in Babylon, it wasn't the same as when they were in exile in, in Egypt many years before, before Moses led them out. In Babylon, they were slaves, but when the Babylonian captivity had taken place, they didn't necessarily make them into slaves. They wanted to incorporate them into the, the Babylonian culture, make them um, some of their own people. And so they allowed them to have businesses. Um, uh, the whole um, area where they were was, a, was a, tour, a trade place. And so the Jews set up businesses and became, many of them became very wealthy. And some of them, such as Daniel or, or Meshach, Yershach, and Abednego, um, those three, uh, four guys were so um, well-educated and so brilliant that they actually became a very integral part of the government there. So the Jews are highly favored uh, when they went into this captivity. So now they're, they're told, you can go home now, rebuild the temple, and um, of course, Nehemiah, if you read him, you would say he was concerned about the walls, which would protect them, and they were broken down. But those are all st of things that we read in, those, in the prophets of um, 
the end of the, New, the Old Testament, and also Daniel, Nehemiah, and Ezra, which um, are recorded at the end of 1 Chronicles, and Daniel's at the beginning of the, the Minor Prophets. But it, the Bible isn't laid out the way history is, so you'll have to understand that. And as a matter of fact, David Parson's book, Unlocking the Bible, helps to put everything into perspective time-wise. I highly recommend it. Now, there's only 42,360 Jews that came back. Both Ezra in chapter 2 and Nehemiah in chapter 7, they both list the people that come back by name, the heads of the families at least, and the, the number in both books is the same. And so we have this people coming back. So what are they coming back to? They're coming back to a, a, a run-down city that nobody's lived in for 70 years. They're coming back to a temple that's been, everything wooden was, was burned and the, the stones were tore down and it just was a devastating pile of rubble. So what they did, they, they left relatives, they left friends, they left their nice brick homes, their schools, their businesses, and the luxury that Babylon had given to them. And they come back to be um, uh, living in this desolate, this, this poverty-stricken city and country. The lands weren't even, the lands must have been full of weeds from 70 years. As a matter of fact, when an enemy took over another person's territory and took them away, they often, they would chop down every tree. They would throw rocks and, and garbage on their lands where they farmed in their gardens. And so the children of Israel are coming back to a garbage dump, a, a mess. And so the only good thing that they might have rejoiced in is that they were coming from Babylon. And when Abraham had come, come back to the, or had come to the Canaan many years before, he had followed that route from Babylon on into the Promised Land. And now these people followed the same route. So that probably was encouraging for them. But you see, Jerusalem didn't have the same advantage and it was a very bleak forecast for them to come back because they'd been sitting there for 70 years. Now Zerubbabel, who was a descendant of David out of his line, um, became their governor and Joshua was a high priest. He was from the tribe of Levi. And then they had come back and they started to rebuild the temple. But something happened. Um, Cyrus was replaced. His country was overrun by a man named Darius. Um, he was a uh, Midianite. And the Jews lost the finances that Cyrus had promised to give them to rebuild the temple. And so they became discouraged because they didn't have any money now. So for two years they had rebuilt the temple, repaired walls and so on. But then for 14 years nothing was done to restore the temple. Now I'm going through all this because I want us to see from, the, from a New Testament point of view that, the, that we are the temple of the living God. And the devastation that we see in the Old Testament of the temple that Herod had built for the children of Israel because Solomon's temple had been destroyed many years earlier. This temple was, was to be rebuilt and 
wasn't going to be easy. 14 years they sat with no money, and they became very discouraged. But also the land was not producing, and they became hungry, they became desolate as far as if they're in a famine, they're in poverty, and so living became very difficult. So Haggai now comes with the word of the Lord to these people that are discouraged. He says from verse 2 of, of first chapter of Haggai, this is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say, the time has not yet come for the Lord's house to be built. So again, because of the lack of finances, they had stopped after two years, and they had become discouraged. But Haggai was saying, God is talking to me, and God is saying to me, you're supposed to be building. But you say, no, we can't build. So therefore, because we don't have the money, therefore, the timing must be wrong. And in our personal lives, from a New Testament point of view, we're so aware in the churches of the New Testament, we're going to get into to the book of Revelation, especially where we talk about seven churches there from actually the area of Asia. We find there are people that had drifted away from God. We find people that had taken other things ahead of God. Instead of fulfilling the first commandment of putting God first in everything, they had started to put other things there. And so in a sense what they're doing, they're ignoring the temple, this temple. And in this struggle that God had to keep people close to himself, uh, to keep them that they wouldn't be drawn away by all the distractions that life has for us. He began to uh, talk to them through Haggai and said, he's really saying to them, even though you say that we must have had the wrong timing, God is saying, no, no. The word of the Lord came through Haggai the prophet and it says, is it a time for yourselves to be building in your paneled homes while this house remains a ruin? Now this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thoughts to your ways. Now just a minute. The um, money wasn't there to build the temple, but the money seemed to be there to build their homes, nice paneled homes. And I can understand coming out of Babylon where they had nice homes, they wanted to have nice homes, but God is saying, you've ignored the very thing I sent you back to do. Now today he would say to me, Howard, you're so busy doing all this other stuff, you're totally ignoring the thing that I created you for, the thing that I put my breath in you for, the thing that I did in the miracle of forming you, fearfully and wonderfully creating you in your mother's womb. I did all that for a reason that I could take pleasure in you, that we could have fellowship together and walk together as Adam did in the garden with, with God, where we fellowship with God in the evenings until sin messed it up. But you see, I, I can ignore my temple. And like the children of Israel back there, oh, it's the wrong time. I don't have time in, in my busy life. I, I just don't have time to spend with the Lord. 
And yet, he created me for that reason. That's why I'm here. That's why you're here. We're here to be a family. Now, this is the thing about Father God. He's a family person. He's a, he loves family. And he creates us to be a family. He doesn't create us to be busy and be successful and to be mighty and well-known or a good singer, or a good artist, or a good business. He doesn't create us for those reasons, first of all. He creates us to be his child. And children are meant to give the parents pleasure. It says in the Psalms, he, was, we were, he takes pleasure in us. I had to actually go one time, way back years ago, when I was learning this. I actually stood in front of a mirror and said a number of times, in spite of how I feel, in spite of how I think, that guy in that mirror, God takes pleasure in him. And I had to say it, I had to say it many times to get my whole thinking around it, in spite of who I see myself, in spite of that. God enjoys me. And now I've, my wife and I have four boys, and they grew up. They're good fellas. One of them is my editor here. And in these guys, Mark and I enjoyed them. We enjoyed them. As a matter of fact, when the last one left, got married and left her home, our house was quiet, and we didn't necessarily like it that well because the joy of laughter and the joy of fellowship was there. And you see, the Father in heaven is no He calls us a family. He calls himself a father. Why? And he calls us as children. Why? Because he's a family person. And he wants to spend time with us. Now, I've sat listening to many people because often people come to us because of our ministry and just want to talk. And I hear stories of how children have caused them pain. Children have, have either are too busy to spend time with them or too busy to, to ever give them the time of day or to visit them in a hospital or visit them in an old folks' home. They're just too busy. And it hurts. It hurts when children rebel against parents and swear at them or, or flat out break laws and regulations that the parents have set down, which were sent down to try to, to protect the child. It hurts. And you see, I read in the Psalms, I read back in the Genesis actually as well, that God is hurt. It says of Noah, that when God looked down upon the earth and there was so much sin, so much separation, that sin had separated us from him. It says he had great pain in his heart because here's his father in heaven longing to be with the children he created, longing to have fellowship, and they totally ignore him. They totally set up barriers against him with their sin. As a matter of fact, Today I see it, I assume it was happening in Old Testament times. I assume it was happening in the book of Revelation with the churches there, where people are actually defying God 
by literally doing things that they know are against his will and his law in order to show God they don't have to listen to him. It's the act of rebellion. It says in Ephesians, we all have it. We all are born with this rebellion in us. And believe me, we have to get rid of it. And there's many in the church that have never gotten rid of it. Paul says, it's within us. And there's so many Christians today that have never, ever dealt with it in the flesh, nor have they dealt with it in, as a demonic stronghold. Can be either one or generally both. So God is bruised. He's pained. He is grieved because we have said, we're more concerned about the outward than we are about the inward. We're more concerned about our job, our playthings, our homes, our, all that stuff out there than we are about the temple. And that's what hurts. I want you to understand, it isn't that God wants to punish us, it's that God hurts. He's done so much for us. I was thinking the other day, here's God. In Genesis 1, he's creating, speaks, and the world was formed. Speaks, and the water divides. Speaks, and there was light and dark. Speaks, and there was animals. Speaks, and there was birds and fish. He speaks. But when it came to man, he did something different. He scooped up some dirt and made man out of that dirt. And then he took that man and he breathed into him his breath to give him the life of God in him. He didn't do that for the animals. He didn't do that for the birds or the fish or insects or anything else. But he did it for man. His breath, his life was supposed to be in us. Because we have been born in sin, because of Adam and Eve's sin, we are born without that spirit of life within us. But he wants to breathe it into us. And when Jesus said to the disciples just before he was taken to the cross that the Holy Spirit was coming, he said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. He was saying, when you get baptized in the Holy Spirit, you have the breath of God in you again. And that gives you the right to fellowship with me and to, and to walk with me and talk with me and share your problems, share your joys, share your life with me. I'm a father. I love to hear what my children are going through. He did that for us. And yet we say, I'll go my own way. I don't have to do what God says. Who, like Pharaoh, who is he that I should obey him? And Moses talked to him about letting them go. We not just have the world saying that. We have people in the Christian church saying that, I'll do it my way. I'm going my way. And, we're, and we can still speak all the religious garbage um, um, language in order, in order to um, uh, cause people to think we're good Christians, but really we're in our hearts we're rebelling and doing what we want to do, not what the Lord says to want to do. And what does the Lord say in verse 5? Give careful thoughts to your ways. Howard, listen to me, Howard. If there's things that interfere with your time with the Lord, you need to give careful thought to your way. Because you are not fulfilling what God put you on planet Earth to fulfill. You are not. 
You see, when, when I die, they're going to stuff me in a box with nice cloth all around me for some reason to keep me comfortable even though I'm dead. And um, I won't be able to take my home with me. I won't be able to take my bank account with me. I can't take my checkbook. I can't take my credit card. I can't take any of them. Uh, any reputation? What, is, what good is it to me now? What people think of me? Outside of the funeral where somebody might say something nice about me, I have no reputation anymore. I don't exist. And within a few months, maybe at least a few years, most people, except for my dear wife and my sons, will have forgotten about me. And the world goes on just as if it never existed, probably. So what have I gained? If we gain the whole world, Jesus said, and we lose our own soul, what have we gained? And so here we are now with Haggai. Give careful thoughts, the Lord said. Give careful thoughts to your ways. Readjust your thinking. This whole area has been the hardest area of my life to be disciplined to. It's the hardest area because Satan doesn't want me there. He doesn't want me listening to God, talking with God, sensing his presence, feeling his heartbeat when I lay my head on his chest, sensing his pain for the world. He doesn't want me there. God said, why don't you think about it? What did I create you for? What are we here for? He said to them in verse 6, you have planted much, but have harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You put on clothes, but are not warm. You earn wages, but to put them in a purse with holes in it. You say, God says, in his word, I have all these promises for you. And we look at the promises. We have a little promise book we bought, and they've got all the promises, so I don't have to read the Bible. I just go read the promises. And you say, what, what's wrong? It's not happening. And it can easily be that it's not happening because we haven't entered into the very thing God called us to, and that is the fellowship. You know, there's, let me think, there's five times, well, let me say it there, there's three times the Bible tells us we're to fellowship with Jesus. Twice we're to fellowship with the Father. Twice it says to fellowship with the Holy Spirit. That's seven times that we're told to fellowship with the Godhead. It's all in the New Testament. Now listen to me. If I'm created for this purpose, I need some way to say, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. I'm not going to let the world stop me any longer. I'm going to do it. Again in verse 7, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Again, he says, give careful thought to your way. In other words, you're not looking after what I created you to look after. You're, you're drawn away 
So give careful thoughts. He says in verse 8, go up into the mountains and bring down timber. They had to go way up in the mountains because the plot land had been ravaged by the Babylonians many 70 years before. The trees were all gone. It's like desert now. So you have to go way up there. I want you to get some timber, and I want you to build my house. So what does he say in verse 8? Why should I build that up? So I may take pleasure in it and be on it. Let me bring this into New Testament. Howard, get your life sorted out. Get your life organized so you can spend time with me so that I may take pleasure and be honored by you in you. That's what it says. I just, I'm here to tell you what the Bible says. I'm not interested in telling you what I think. I'm telling you what the Bible says. He wants to take pleasure in this temple. And then he says in verse 9, you expect it much, the promise book, Lord. You expect it much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. Why? declares the Lord Almighty. Here's the reason. Because of my house, because of this temple, which remains a ruin. Oh, let me put it there. Because of the temple in here, which is neglected, which is run down, it's hungry because we don't feed it from the word every day. It's thirsty because we don't drink of the water of the Holy Spirit in prayer. This house is neglected that's why things aren't working out for us, folks. Because of my house, which remains ruined, while each of you is busy with all this stuff out there. Are you hearing me? Are you hearing me? Are you taking careful thought of your ways? says in verse 10, therefore, because of you, the heavens have withheld, have withheld their dew and the earth its crops. I call for a drought on the field. Listen, note who called for it. It wasn't Satan that did it. God says, I call for a drought on the fields and the mountains, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, and whatever the ground produces, on men and cattle, and on the labor of your hands. You understand, God is saying, because I, was, I, I created you for a purpose, to be a family, to a fellowship, but you've ignored it, you've defied my, my, my instruction, you've gone your own way, therefore, I am the one that caused your crops to fail, your new wine to fail, all the cattle and all that stuff, all that stuff is failing because you have failed me the Lord would say. Now that's pretty serious as far as I can see. And I tell you, I'm going to say it again, it's been my biggest battle. It isn't a battle against the devil. It's a battle against my lazy flesh, which I confess to you, a lazy flesh that wants to do other things besides just sitting down and spreading time with the Lord. You know, all of us can do this. If you have a job, seven to four, eight to whatever, nine to five, who cares? It is possible to say, Lord, I'm going to start getting up an hour before I need to 
so I can spend time with you. Because in the early morning, that's, that's the best time. The phone isn't ringing out. There's, there's, there's nothing you can do. And, so, and, you, and I had to make a decision. I'm not going to turn on the computer in the morning. I'm not going to check my emails. I'm not going to check messages that may have came that late, late night before or through the night. I'm not going to do any of that stuff. I'm going to worship first of all. I'm going to spend time in the Word. I'm going to sit in the presence of the Lord. And I'm going to, I'm going to give to Him, as a child would give to His Father, time to say, you're an awesome God. I'm not finished with this yet. This is part one I've just finished. Please, don't leave it at that. Look for part two. It'll be in the archive somewhere if you miss it. A father... Do what has to be done in our hearts. Do what has to be done so your Holy Spirit can transport to you the pleasure that you want in the name of Jesus. please visit our website at jwmi.ca to find out about more information of our ministry.